Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Welcome to Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong, and this is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, our guest is Mark Spencer. The life of a musician is a lot of hurry up and wait. Be in the lobby at 9 a.m. or you will be left behind, so you can wait for the bus, on which you will sit for the next eight hours as you drive from state to state, town to town, and gig to gig. Mark Spencer is the kind of musician who knows this mantra all too well. He has been a professional musician for most of his adult life, starting out as a member of alt-country pioneers The Blood Oranges, before joining Uncle Tupelo founder J. Farrar Solo Tours, a gig that eventually evolved into his present job as a guitarist and multi-instrumentalist for Sunvolt. There have been a lot more gigs along the way, in the studio and on stage with artists like Lisa Loeb, Freddie Johnston, Jim Lauderdale, Wanda Jackson, and a host of others. He produces artists out of his Brooklyn studio, The Tape Kitchen, and can be found on the road this year touring to promote Sunvolt's latest album, Honky Tonk. Spencer also recorded Honky Tonk in Sunvolt's hometown of St. Louis, as well as in his studio, and also learned how to play the pedal steel guitar to make sure the album stayed true to Farrar's goal to make the record an homage to the Bakersfield style of country music. I had a chance to catch up with Spencer after a Sunvolt soundtrack at the Belly Up Tavern in Solana Beach, California, as the band was wrapping up the southwest leg of the Honky Tonk Tour. I am sitting in the back of the Belly Up Tavern in Solana Beach, California. My guest on Independence Day tonight is Sunvolt guitar player, pedal steel player, and keyboard player Mark Spencer. He has a long and illustrious career in the music business, and his latest gig is Sunvolt. Welcome to Independence Day, Mark Spencer. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. This is kind of a. This we're definitely out in the field tonight. We're in the back of the belly up, and we've got uh, we've got like the, the c- cover funk band playing. Yeah. Uh, uh, you can't. Uh, you'd have you, normally you'd have to pay a lot of money to get this kind of exactly. ambient background it's, it's, music, it, but tonight yeah. it's free and it's awesome. Indeed. So <laughs> you're out with Sunvolt, and you're just finishing up uh, like a West Coast run. Uh, you know, and you you spend a lot of time on the road with these guys and with other artists as well. At this, I mean, when you were a kid, um, you know, when you thought of being a music, you know, a, a professional musician such as it is, was this the kind of thing you thought of, like just riding around and in buses and vans? Well, when I was a kid, I had no idea that this is what I would do. I mean, I th- I've recently was given a drawing that I made in high school by my mom that was a drawing of a rock band that mostly featured all of the chords correctly going from the instruments to the amps, but nothing about it implied that I don't think that I was particularly interested in going on the road or being a professional musician other than I just liked rock music. I just never thought I would do that. And then I just started doing it and I'm still doing it. Yeah. And when you, you know, how old were you when it started to become kind of a career path? Were you Uh, in college? Like most people are kind of like they start and they play in their high school band and yeah, well, they, well, I started the in college. first time it started to seem like it was getting professional when I was in Vermont in the 80s. I played in a band there called Pinhead, which was often billed as Vermont's premier new wave punk rock band. And we became very popular and we did four sets of original music a night and uh, made a couple independent records. I recorded my first record on a four track before I really knew what I was doing. And then we started playing out of state. We started playing at CBGB's. 
and we would pack CBGBs because we'd go down there. All of the college kids in Burlington and Vermont would uh, we'd, we'd plan our gigs. We'd play at CBs on uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas or something, and there'd be a line yeah. out the block. And later, after I moved to New York City, Hilly Crystal, one time when I was loading in with another band, actually looked up sort of from the fog and looked at me and pointed at me and just said, Pinhead. So oh, that's cool. I felt like I had... You know, had done a good job. Yeah, but. there's there's something to that college scene. Like, I don't think I've ever had a crowd with as much fervor for music that I've done as I did in college. Like, we yeah. could pack a room in college because kids got they're into music. Yep. They've got a lot of free time, even if they think they don't, they really do. Yeah, and they've got a little bit of disposable income. And you know, a lot of these college bars have nickel beers. At least they did yeah. back in the day. And also back in the day, particularly in Vermont, but it happened everywhere. Is that the drinking age was eighteen. Uh, whether having it 18 or 21, that whole debate is one thing. But um, it definitely changed college gigs, live gigs, music gigs, bands, how much money you could make when they went it up to 21. Yeah, That definitely. whole stretch of it, grandfathering in the 21-year-old drinking age back in the 80s was pretty traumatic for it, a lot of like working musicians and bands and people that made their living that way. That hit right about the time I was turning 18. There were a few people who were, you know, Wisconsin lagged behind Illinois where I grew up. So a lot of kids, even in my high school, would drive up to Wisconsin. The kids like right just older than me yep. could go up to Wisconsin and get beer. And we'd go on music tour trips, you know, with the school group. And they were old enough to buy beer in certain states, which was, I'm sure, gave <laughs> gave fits to the chaperone. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, that's the other advantage of being in a band in New England is that the cities are so close by. I mean, that's how a guy like Dave Matthews did so well on the East Coast is like in a in a day or not even in a part of a day, you can be from one town to another and just work your way up and down the coast. And if you're in the Northeast, it's even closer. Yeah. You can do Boston and New York and all the states that are tied up through there, Philly even. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's probably a benefit to, to what you have. Sure, there. yeah. Um, you and cover you, a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Yeah, and it's a less wear and tear in your car. Yeah, and there's a, and it's actually easier for word of mouth to spread too. Because if you're you know a kid and you live in New York, maybe you're from Western Mass or right. Vermont, and you you go home and tell your friends about this band Pinhead. Yeah. Like, hey, you should go see this band next time they're in yeah. town. You know, maybe you do. Uh, anyway, so your latest gig though, or it's been a pretty solid gig for a while now. You've been playing with Sunvolt for how many years? You think? I've known Jay since the Blood Oranges days. Because uh, I think Paul Coldery, the producer, produced the first Blood Oranges record and the first Uncle Tupelo record. So we sort of knew about each other during that time period. Then we just started doing, I, I believe, Uncle Tupelo opened for Blood Oranges a couple times. Wow. And then suddenly that changed around. Yeah. But uh, he, you know, so I've known Jay since then. And then later when I played with Freedy, we. Freddie Johnston. Freddie Johnston. We toured the whole last Uncle Tupelo tour. And then, you know, I've just kept in touch with a new Jay since then. And then he asked me to come and play with him and record with him, I guess, around 1999 or 2000 when he started doing recording. He'd already recorded his first solo record. And then I started playing with him, and then I played on the subsequent ones after that. Because that's when you, because I knew of the Blood Oranges, and of course I knew of Freedy, and I'm a liner note junkie. I'm sure I've read Mm -hmm. your name in the liner notes. Unlucky, I noticed, was the first thing you played on, which was that EP that came out after uh, Can You Fly. Right. And uh, so that's probably the first time I noticed you, and I'd always heard of the Blood Oranges, but the first time I really recall, like, having you as a presence on my musical radar was playing with Farrar with those those tours where you did as a duo right you know and because so, he had he had done the first lineup of Sunvolt 
done the three records and then kind of shelved the, the project right. and was doing did did, did a couple records and did you play yeah. on the records too? Yeah, I didn't play on the the first one, but I played on. Um, is it Terra Blues? Terra Blues, the second one. Sebastopol, and I think, is the first one. Sebastopol is the first one, and I think there was an EP called yeah. from those sessions. And then I played on Terra Blues, and then during that time, we did a tour where it was uh, Jay and I and Eric Haywood, Eric Haywood, the uh, steel player who was, you know, in Sun Vault. You know, he played on the yeah. records and stuff. And we did this whole tour and made a live album from that, which is live in Seattle, I think okay. it's called. And I think you can buy it on the website or something like that. I don't know if it's in stores. And then what came after that? Was there another solo record? Uh, well, then he started doing Sunvolt Yeah, then he again. just started doing Sunvolt. So, like, and during that time, he, he started getting Sunvolt together. First, he did a Sunvolt record i guess or he, he played with that band canyon which is where right. he eventually got dave right. the dave drummer. bryce and the drummer and, and then derry de borja as well and, and derry now as well. plays with jason isbell it's all exactly. it all fits in together yep. um, anyway let's take this time let's break for just a second i want to play a track off the new sunvolt record that you okay. played on yeah this uh, is my favorite track favorite track on the record we this don't is, play it live yet uh, and this <laughs> is the song angel of the blues the new sunvolt record it's called honky tonk it's influenced by the bakersfield country sound came out in earlier uh, earlier this year in 2013 uh, and it's got a lot of the dual fiddle work and a lot of your pedal steel playing, a lot of your keyboard playing. And you sing on it as well? Yep. Yeah, yeah you're probably. pretty much all over this record, Mr. Spencer, and good work. I like that. And record. I recorded it. Very nice. All right. <laughs> Double dipping, triple <laughs> dipping, something like that. So this is Sunvolt from the Honky Tonk record with Angel of the Blues on Independence Day. Shift and then turn Double-edged dance Hearts burn with the wind to find their way Words that connect but never gain enough traction Dust forever blown astray And there was never any doubt Plans to make Carry out Time keeps slipping through Angel Medicine and blood All the strands that collide
magnetic engines roar Sad songs keep the devil away Chances are it's a given That it was time all along Miles keep knocking at the door And there was never any doubt to me My name is Joe Armstrong. You are listening to Independence Day, and I'm very, very happy to have my guest, Mark Spencer, on the show tonight. He is the guitarist, keyboard player, singer, and also pedal steel player now for Sunvolt. He's kind of a jack-of-all-trades, doing a lot of different things. He did uh, some engineering and production on the record as well? Yep. I I recorded the whole record, and then uh, uh, it was just mixed by John Agnello, who has has engineered and mixed a lot of... Jay's stuff. And you can, and very nice, you can learn about Mark at markspencer.us, pretty traditional spelling, Mark with a K, Spencer, S-P-E-N-C-E-R. Also, of course, sunvolt.net and jfarrar.net. He's kind of the big man on campus in terms of what this band is all about. Uh, so you grew up, you were born in Champaign, you kind of grew up in the Northeast, you're living in Brooklyn now. Um, you've been playing on and off with Jay Farrar for a decade or more. Yeah. And, you know, there's... It's been, I don't want to say it's a revolving door in Sunvolt, but he's, he's definitely had different lineups. It's evolved and changed over the years. But you've been involved as long as essentially anyone has, probably. Yeah, I think um, so. You know, and this is a band, you know, because of the Uncle Tupelo lineage, it's, it's revered. Right. You know, and there's, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say cobwebs, but there's, a, there's just a lot of mystique and a lot of reverence to this band. Like, yeah. I mean, and I'm... Uh, I'm curious to know, like being involved with it for so long, like how do you think, from your perspective, how do you fit into this whole saga? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not truly like a Derek Smalls, like lukewarm water in the middle. Uh, Excellent reference, <laughs> by the way. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm sort of in it because I, you know, I know everybody involved intimately in one way or another, or yeah. as friends. But you know, I'm kind of outside it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not involved in it. For instance, the way a lot of Uber fans are. Right. It just it doesn't mean the same thing to me because I don't come at it from a fan. I'm just they're my friends and they make music yeah. and I, I, I enjoy it. So it's just it's a it's a different. I have a completely different relationship to it than, yeah, some of the folks who take it very 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 seriously yeah well that exa- that's exactly that's what i'm getting at because you know some people do take it so very very yeah. seriously and 
uh, you know, it's it's twangy rock music. You know, I, I don't yeah. want to demystify it because I love it too. You know, but it's fun. It's interesting to me as a fan even to go yeah. see a Sunvolt show or a Jay Farrar show and see the guys who are like with their digital cameras, they're like taking pictures of pedal settings and yeah. and like fighting over set lists. I mean, you know, anyone famous inspires you know this kind of fervor in yeah. people sometimes but there's kind of a special fervor for the whole there is a lineage yeah. because I, I mean i've played with a lot of different artists that have inspired a lot of different kinds of stereotypical and you know heartfelt fandom yeah but there is a very specific kind based around jay and sunvolt and uncle tupelo and the whole backstory and all that stuff you know for a lot yeah. of people it's their kind of personal you know, uh, John and Paul type thing in a way. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, it is. It's an interesting modern story because you know there was an article that came out just last week in uh, the Atlantic, kind of talking about you know why is alt country or no depression or whatever you want to call it why is it all white guys you know right and you know it was an interesting record because they well first of all I took umbrage with the fact that they mentioned Whiskey Town before Uncle Tupelo in the sentence yeah. like I, I'm enough of a fan that I was like okay right. that's that, that you all due respect to Ryan right. Adams that that should be reversed yeah. in order that's a chronological mistake yeah exactly <laughs> if, if nothing else it's chronological right. but then they also kind of you know he kind of brushed over Jason Isbell who's making a lot of waves with his yep. new record Southeastern you know he's, he's gotten attention from the New York Times the whole drive by truckers mystique that whole thing um, you know it, like I said it's such an interesting thing to be in to be involved in and to watch it happen you know some people like I said it's like a John and Paul kind yeah. of situation a little bit um, I so think the other th another aspect of that is when you're involved in it like whether you know I was on I was on the last Uncle Tupelo tour, which I'm sure a lot of people fantasize about how heavy that must have been and, you know, the, the friction between those guys and all this stuff. But I was friends with them and on tour with them. And, you know, when you're, when you're involved in that kind of thing and you see the, the so-called drama going by day to day, it's not really that dramatic. If it's, you've been in a band... Yeah, you know, like if you it's very slow moving. Band. It's like it's yeah. like the dinosaurs or something. You know, it's not like it's like every day is some sort of example of the giant flashpoint that has become yeah. this big story. It's more like, you know, it very yeah. slow moving. We we <laughs> we live in a dramatic time, and it's been accelerated by the media and the internet. Yeah. I'm not I'm not here to bash on the internet or yeah. bash on the media because I'm part of it, but. Uh, we as a society, you know, like the drama and we tend to blow. I mean, look at the sh TV shows that we as a society yeah. watch, you know, every yeah. day. And it's it's all based on conflict and not it's not based on what's harmonious about it. I mean, Uncle yeah. Tupelo made great music. Sunvolt's still making great music. Wilco, I dare use the W word in this interview. Yeah. They're still making great music, too. You know, and in some ways, it's almost like Jason Isbell leaving Drive by Truckers when he first left. I was I was dejected. Because yeah. having three songwriters of that caliber in that band yeah. blew my mind for a few years there but then he started making such great solo records now it's like well now there's two of them there's like twice as much output and it's almost the same thing the way yeah. i look at this situation as well mm -hmm. so but let's let's get away from the drama i'm not here yeah. to talk about that either let's talk a little bit more about the music um one thing that's interesting uh you know sunvolt you know they've they've kind of veered left and right i mean when i saw him he was doing a tour with canyon actually i saw him at the troubadour and he was on that right. tour by him i mean jay and it was extremely loud yeah. and very, very rock and roll. So yep. he, he can kind of lean towards that kind of punkish thing. You know, yeah. he got that Uncle Tupelo was represented there too, the Minutemen kind of thing. Yeah, Lots exactly. Lots of feedback and yeah. loud um, guitars, loud and, guitars. And, and you know the stop-start thing. And yeah, the, you know, it's like a 
it's a it's a midwestern punk rock influenced yeah. vibe that he's you know he's he doesn't shy away from it, yeah, but then he kind of veers back towards the acoustic thing and yeah. a little bit of experimenting in there. So when he, you know, after doing American Central Dust, and maybe it's not that big of a jump, that was Sunvolt's most recent record yeah. before, the, I think it was about 2009 or so, yeah. uh, before Honky Tonk came out. So when Jay, did he talk to you about this this switch to this like Bakersfield influence? Was that a was that a conscious thing that he'd come to you and say like, hey, I want you to play more pedal steel, or can you play more pedal steel, or had you already been playing it? I guess because when I first saw you with Sunvolt, you were doing mostly keyboards and guitar. Yeah, well, I was playing uh, when I was playing with Jay solo, and then during American Central Dust, I was playing lap steel, and lap steel is kind of my main steel instrument, you know, or at least I I still think of myself as just learning how to play lap steel. Yeah, and there are probably many lap steel and pedal steelers who would agree with. That. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, Jay said I want you to play pedal steel, so I traded him. A lap steel for a pedal steel, you know, and he wanted me to play pedal steel. So, you know, my my pedal steel style setup tuning is idiosyncratic at the very yeah. least. What it's tuning? A, this is inside baseball, but it's what a tuning, tuning are you using? based on another tuning that I made up for lap steel that is also a non-standard lap steel tuning. Interesting. It's not. There's no. You know. Out of curiosity, what is it? It's uh, a, an open. It's, it's the lap steel tuning is like kind of like a. Um, it's a one five one three five six in okay. G, so it's kind of like an open E chord on a guitar, but in G, and a six on top instead of the okay. one, and then my pedal steel tuning is that same tuning, but with seven strings, and finally the extra one on the top. Okay, and I'm playing an old uh, Fender four hundred. Which is uh, you know, run on a system of ancient levers and pulleys and stuff, and there's only four pedals, and I have two basic bends that every pe- pedal steel guitar has, yeah. and then I had the fellow may say, "I want the third pedal to be a minor chord and the fourth pedal to be yeah. you know I made up a five one turnaround, and that's what it is, and now my whole pedal steel style to date at least is based on the original decision to do that, yeah. And also, I don't use finger picks. I don't use a traditional pedal steel bar. Apparently, I don't use the right volume pedal. Yeah, it's, is, it, is it a Goodrich? Or nah, good, I, I don't have a Goodrich. I have an Ernie that, Ball that's volume That's what I'm pedal. saying. That's what the heavy, heavy yeah, steel there's players a whole use. Bunch and they all them, use you know. PV amps, too. Yeah. Uh, for, the, for the uninitiated, what we're talking about here is the pedal steel guitar, which is this Byzantine but yet wondrous instrument that you sit down at and play almost on your lap, but it's like a little table almost. There are no frets. You're, you're moving a bar around, so there's no, the intonation is very important. But yet, to make it even more complicated, you are changing the tuning of the instrument while you are playing the instrument. It's just for people who aren't musicians yeah. who know what the deal is. And unique to that is that, to take it a step farther even from there, is that every player kind of sets their steel up differently with different tunings. The, the bars and foot levers and knee levers do different things for them. Every steel player customizes their instrument yeah. to make it so that they play it the way they want yeah. to play it. So, I mean, I, did, I was watching you play. You just played at the Troubadour last night. And you know, I noticed that. Yeah, you definitely. You're not even. You're not. You're playing with a pick. I'm playing it's with a flat pick. A and my and, and my fingers. When I learned, when I started playing lap steel, I also didn't use finger picks, and I don't know if I ever will because I just don't take to them. Do I've, you, a, I've attempted to 
try to play banjo with them, hoping that that will be a gateway yeah. to finger picks, but it doesn't really work. Finger picks are funny little metal picks that you attach to the ends of your fingers and sometimes plastic on your thumb yeah. uh, that allow, you know, uh, uh, Towns Van Zandt, I think. He was played a, with finger picks. Was a finger pick yeah. guy. And I've seen to think maybe John Prine from time to time will do it. Uh, it it's I've experimented with it. It makes it louder, but yet yeah. kind of cold in a way. My friend Freedy for a while started using finger picks, and he was pretty good at it He's because he's very... He's got a really almost like a rhythmic clock to the way he yeah. strums the guitar anyway. So yeah. I think he transferred over to finger picks really well. Maybe he plays tenor ban- uh, banjo and tenor guitar with them and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Very, very nice. So, you know, we talked, we touched on this before. This, I mean, we got to get away from this inside. I could talk about this stuff all yeah. day long with this, this music geeking out stuff. Um, but wait, let's let's talk gear for just a second before we get too far away from okay. this. I noticed, you know, last night I did happen to notice. I mean, I guess I'm enough of a music geek to notice. There's kind of two schools of thought for, for touring bands when it comes to gear. Yeah. Some bands use off-the-rack gear that you can find at every guitar center nationwide so that when it breaks, they can, they can send a runner out and say, go buy a Boss DS1 distortion pedal because right. every one that you get will be identical as the last. Yep. And that way also, I mean, one thing that's a big problem for touring bands is theft. If someone rummages yeah. through your stuff and steals your trailer or steals your gear, then you can replace. I mean, it's, it sucks. And the original version of Sunvolt experienced a really major yeah. theft one time. Yeah, there. Jason Isbell just a couple years ago right. lost all his yeah. stuff. I know. I mean, you, there, you can't. Cracker has lost yeah. their stuff. I mean, you can't. Yeah, you can't name a band. A flock of seagulls just recently got I their pants stolen yeah. right out here in Los Angeles. Uh, so that, that so that's the one school of thought. They'll just use off the rack stuff, and they just kind of do the best they can with it in terms yep. of tone. And then the other way around is kind of like the more unique boutique type pedals, interesting things, yeah. um, which I tend to prefer. It's more you can do more with it. It's more unique in your sound. And you guys tend to lean in the latter camp. Um, I think so. That, well, I think I think a lot of people with pedals and pedal boards. I mean. I remember a time at the beginning of alt country or whatever you wanted to call it where most of the people playing were like really looked down on the use of any kind of delay or reverb or or anything and they was just like all you need is a p90 into a marshall amp and that's the sound you should be getting you know gary lewis and his fuzz face though yeah but but there was you know that but then you know 10 12 years later all these uh Luddites are now, you know, saying how you know, how how Pink Floyd's a big influence on me, yeah, <laughs> stuff. So, uh, but there's a, a sort of a renaissance or something like that of uh, boutique stomp boxes. There's a lot of people that make them. There's a million overdrives, distortion, fuzz tones, delays, every you know everything. Yeah. They're everywhere. I used to keep up more with it, but then it kind of it exploded to the point where I couldn't keep yeah. up with it anymore. You can't. It's like it's like uh, craft beers and microbrews. There's no way you'll ever be able to try them all or even yeah. find out what they taste or sound like. <laughs> God knows. I'll try. But <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take one for the team in that regard and see what I can do. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, you've, but you've got you know, your amp. You know, it's a Fender-ish amp, but yeah. it's a Milkman. It's a it's guy. A milkman. Tell, tell me a little bit about yeah. that. Uh, well, it's it's made by a friend of mine up in San Francisco. And he basically just makes a line of amps. They're all roughly Fender-ish, but they're his own circuit design. And they go from everything from a small 5-watt amp up to a big pedal steel amp. And he's a pedal steel player, so he's kind of making an amp that's sort of specifically for pedal steel. All the one I, one I play is um, has a, 
a channel that's voiced for electric guitar and one that's voiced for pedal steel. And a couple of his amps have that option. And I put my old JBL speaker in there, which sounds awesome. And, uh, you know, I've been carding it around and trying to break it. Yeah. that's Well, that's another thing, you know, the... Again, that, that those two schools of thought come to play in here. Like, you know, yeah. you can use a re. A lot of people were using, you know, reissued deluxe reverbs for right. the longest time. Yeah, I have one of those. And if they, someplace. you know, they sound nice. Yeah. And if, but if they break, it's broken. The, yeah. the, the the circuit board is not really reparable. So you just right. kind of you might salvage it for yeah. parts, but you just go get another one. Whereas if you invest in an older blackface or silverface Fender, you can probably find an Amtec in any city of exactly. any size. And it, they're all standard circuits. There's going to be some yeah. guy who knows the deluxe reverb circuit. Yeah, if you've, if you've got the time, there's usually somebody who can you can take an amp to or maybe will even come over to a gig and for whatever price they charge, can probably hook you up and get you back going. All right, so my guest tonight in Independence Day, very happy to have Mark Spencer. He is currently playing with Sunvolt, but he also plays with lots of other artists and has over the years. Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories, of course, you remember her from Stay. What was the, There was a subtitle to that song. Stay, I Missed You. Stay, I Miss You, yes, yeah. which bears the distinction. is like the, There's a small story with that. With the, if there was a demo. I think, and I hope I have ads? it right, is that it was the, maybe the first song. Was it the first song to win a Grammy by an artist who didn't have a record contract with yeah. a major label. I think it's... I hope I'm getting that right. Yeah, there was something else. It was, as I recall, it was recorded on ADATS because it was a demo. Which Probably were these, was, like, yeah. the, the first digital recording yeah. tape, which weren't very robust and didn't sound very good. Yeah. And then when they went in and tried to re-record it to do a full-on version of it, they couldn't capture yeah. like, the magic that they had on yeah, the... Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a something that, that happens to everybody that records. Trying to yeah. recapture what happened in a demo is uh, is like is chasing something that often can never be yeah. never happen again. Indeed, you got your start with Blood Oranges. Uh, they were based up in the Northeast as well. Wanda yeah. Jackson and Laura Cantrell. We'll talk a little bit more yeah. about her. What you're doing with her? Kelly Willis. I played Kelly Willis. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, and but I want to play a tra- uh, track here. This is. Um, this is from the Blood Oranges. Let's go back to the beginning so we can get a feel for how okay. you started out. This is the track Bridges from the Crying Tree record. We're wow. talking 1994 or so here. Set the scene for this before we play it. Uh, well, this is actually the Blood Oranges' last record. It's my favorite one. It was recorded by our friend Eric Roscoe Amble, who I believe you're familiar with. I am. And Played with Steve uh, Earle for a very long time. It was for a, a record label called Eastside Digital, which fe- featured a few different artists. And... Uh, I don't know. We recorded it in a barn up in Massachusetts, and you, you wrote the tune, though. Yeah, this, this is my tune. One of the one of the few tunes. I'm not a really prolific writer. Yeah, and so, so what? I, I write I write a song, you know, once every ten years. Yeah, and so <laughs> as as, as, an, as a non-prolific writer, you've got to get all your ideas yeah. into one tune. So what's this about? Uh, well, it's I you know it's just sort of a basic, you know, minor key relationship oriented song. Although when it came out, there were a few reviews that talked about it, and one woman dropped me a note or a line one time and uh, described how she loved the song and how it captured uh, a lot of the feelings about the sadness of the floods in the Midwest. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that because I, I, when I played with Freddie Johnson, I was a real fan of the various interpretations of his songs because his songs are, you know, 
He's like one of my favorite songwriters yeah. in the world. And his songs have many interpretations. Yeah, when we had Freedy on the show, we kind of discussed that. And I'm of the opinion, and he was too, that you know, when you write a song, it's yours. But as soon as you record it or play it, it's yeah. also there. Yeah. It's, also, uh, it's everyone's now. Yeah. And everyone has their own interpretation of what it means. Because it can mean there's, there's as many interpretations for the song as there are people who've heard it. Yeah. And uh, so let's, let's hear this. This is Blood Oranges, Mark Spencer's, uh, pretty much your second band, I guess, after Pinhead, right? Yeah, second, yeah. First band that made, you know, kind of national waves yeah. back in the late 80s, early 90s. So this is the track Bridges from The Crying Tree by Blood Oranges. Mark Spencer is my guest on Independence Day. Armstrong, that was the Blood Oranges, and that features Mark Spencer currently playing with Sun Volt. They are on tour in Southern California right now. They've got another leg of that tour coming up later in September, covering the uh, Middle South states. So tell me, you know, how has touring changed since you've been doing this? Because you've been touring now, you know, since the '80s essentially. I yeah. Mean, this is this kind of straddles the line of the internet and digital technology, and you know what you could even have in the van in terms of technology. Like, yeah. tell me how it's changed for you. Uh, well, there's two different kinds of touring. There's van touring, which a lot of bands, most bands do. And then as you work your way up, occasionally you'll find yourself in a situation where you get to tour on a bus. 
But uh, as far as technology, uh, I often sit around with whoever I'm playing with in the van. We try to remember what it was like to tour before you had the internet, cell phones, maps, all that stuff. Uh, AAA used to be bigger back then because you'd uh, go to AAA and you'd get maps of all the cities and all the states so you could actually, you know, see where that street was in Los Angeles instead of having yeah. to imagine it or having somebody tell you where it was. There's a lot of pull- and ask for directions. Yeah, there's a lot of pulling over at Stuckey's. Yeah. And the tour manager would go into that hot little phone booth for about 40 minutes and talk to the record company and the manager and the promotional person yeah. and the next two, three clubs down the road and then come out. And then uh, you'd be on your way. And hopefully yeah. you'd know where uh, the venue was and the Motel 6. So how many, like in, on this particular tour, the band is one, two, three, four, five of you? It's, yeah, five of us. is seven us? people total traveling in a, in a sort of modified sprinter van. That's kind of yeah. like the new... Kind of a, it's a kind of a midway size between a van and a bus. It's not as cushy as a bus, but not nearly as expensive. The overhead yeah. on those buses is very high. Most yeah, people don't it's realize hard to do that. Yeah. We all think about bands being Tom Petty's level, but most musicians aren't touring at that level. Yeah. Those bands are expensive. Yeah, I mean, last time I even looked at that, they were well over two grand a week. Yeah, it's thousands, and and there's uh, you know you got to pay the driver. Uh, you can only drive X amount of hours right. per day, and then you know they have to rest, and you know it's yeah. like it has to. It's a it's a whole way of crafting a tour if it's yeah. going to be on a bus is, yeah i mean it's definitely nice i mean i've toured on a bus before yeah. and it's nice to have your bunk as small coffin size though it may yeah. be that's a, that's space of yours yeah, you get it's, your own cool little rabbit hole and your stuff's in there and you know on long drives you know i remember you know i could sit and pull out my laptop and fart around and do what i do yeah. and watch movies and <clears throat> watch the scenery go by um but at your level so now in this van like how many how many laptops are there? Like, how many iPads? How many? Uh, Everyone's I'm, got a cell phone. I'm, I'm the assuming. only one, actually, even though I'm probably the most, because from, you know, uh, from owning a recording studio and just being more into computers, I'm probably the most tech-oriented person in the band, but I'm the only one that doesn't have an iPad. I still okay. cart around my big old laptop. So t- tell me a little bit about you. You have your own recording studio. I do. It's called the uh, Tape Kitchen. Tape in Kitchen, based in Brooklyn. So when you're not on the road, is that pretty busy? Sometimes it's. I I don't really run it like a full on business studio. It's still just a studio in my home. But depending on what I'm doing and how much time I have, there have been periods in my life where I've kept pretty busy in there. Can I've you do been, drums in there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have so big that's... live rooms. It's like a big old sort of warehouse in a neighborhood that was once kind of abandoned and now it's yet another trendy you, neighborhood in brooklyn called the you, gowanus the gowanus yeah did yeah. you buy the the building or no i don't own it you rent it? okay i i i guess i would love to own it but i don't yeah well maybe someday <laughs> uh so, i don't know <laughs> well, when, well, you just now put, everybody knows where the gowanus is and like how to pronounce it and how to spell it yeah so. exactly uh, the Hem, we referenced Hem before. They referenced that in one in their new uh, single, such as a single is now. Oh, they talk about the Gowanus. Talk about the Gowanus. Everybody's talking there. about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, are you? You're, so you're producing artists out of that studio as well. Like yeah. That. So and recording then, or engineering or producing or the th- whatever in the middle. Sometimes somebody will come and I'll produce them, engineer them, and then play like five instruments on there and. Sometimes design the album cover, so very nice. Or sometimes just one of those things. Now, on the Sunvolt record, I remember reading somewhere in the promotional material that like the record was recorded in St. Louis, but then also in your facility. Were you like, were you? Yeah, well, Jay, Jay has always forth? had 
pretty much a recording studio's worth of gear in in one practice space or place that he had it set up or another. So he's always had his stuff, you know, and he changes around. And, he, you know, he's got a pretty good setup going there right now. So the bulk of it was recorded there. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we just did overdubs and other stuff at the other studios, you know. Yeah, but I guess my question was, in terms of technology, were you just, like, taking a hard drive and then going back to your facility? Yeah. Or or, you, or would he just, like, eat? Because I know I've even had people email me tracks. I'll just email them something, and then they'll do it in their studio and then email it back to me. I never, you never even get yeah. in the same room as these people. Well, we, had, we, we pretty much got everything done basic-wise and the overdubs that we did at Jay's, and then, you know, we had that on a hard drive or copies on a hard drive, and then you pretty much just take that anywhere and yeah. do more work in other studios. It's funny to think of how technology has changed this recording process because, like you said, I mean, you know, even the the, the different recording platforms, you know, there's the Pro Tools and Digital Performer right. and uh, why don't we, what's Cubase even called Cubase now? Sonar. Log Logic. Logic. But they all, I mean, they, they kind of integrate fairly well nowadays. Yeah, they get more and more closer to each other and, and can go cross-platform a little easier. Yeah, and it's... it's Still got to jump through hoops, though. Yeah, well, <laughs> I can't make it that easy, man. Yeah. Everybody's got their... It's like Ford and Chevy. They're not going to make other parts fit yeah. each other's cars. But uh, with Sunvolt, for example, like this earthy-sounding, especially a honky-tonk band, which harkens yeah. back to like the Bakersfield sound... Uh, it's it's interesting, and or, or other bands that are kind of like that. Uh, I don't know that David uh, Rawlings and Gillian are recording on Pro Tools. I don't think they are. So I, I would think, guess. I that think they, they're still they, holding. They, out. I remember when they had all their gear in the RCA studio, I think, in Nashville. And one night after they 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 had played on one of Jade's records, and they came and sang with us at a gig in Nashville. And then afterwards. Before they took us to their favorite Waffle House, they took us to see all their gear, oh, which yeah. was set up. And I'm pretty sure they're recording to analog gear. Oh, they, they might be recording to digital. Yeah. Who knows? They, you know, they kind of finish each other's sentences anyways, yeah. but it was really interesting to hear them talk about their gear. And David, you know, he's a gearhead, and he was yeah. talking about this and that. And then and Gillian seems to know just as much about it as he does. So. Do you know Tape Op Magazine? Oh, yeah. I, uh, they had an interview with David Rawlings, and I yeah. knew he was uh, a gearhead, and he yeah. was really into recording technology, but he's even more eccentric than I thought he was. He yeah. was talking about how they would spend days moving microphones, like yeah. half an inch this way, yeah. half an inch that way, angling it, turning it. Just because, I mean, it's easy with their music. You couldn't do that with a whole band. You'd never finish the record. Yeah. When you have two musicians in the band, it's a lot easier to do yeah. that. But he went really, really deep into oh, yeah, he gets placement. into it. I, I watched um, them uh, one time at... Uh, we did a gig, I can't remember if it was, I guess it was Jay and I opening for them in St. Louis. And I watched them do a sound check, and David basically went to the board while Gillian played and sang. And he wor really worked on her voice and guitar sound for a really long yeah. time. Like, it was a full-on sound check just for that. So, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, and it, but it's funny to think about, you know, a band like Sunvolt, like this no-depression-alt-country stalwart band recording on Pro Tools. But, right. but that's that's the standard now. Well, last time, when we did American Central Dust, Jay has a 24-track machine, 2-inch. And what we would do is he, you know, tape has become very expensive yes, as well. So, he had tape left over, and I can't remember if we had to bake some of it. Sometimes you have to bake tape in order to mm -hmm. reuse it to sort of reattach the iron oxide to the tape backing. So we may have done that. We had a lot of reels of tape, and what we would do is we would record, say we were working on one song, and we were going to do five or six takes. We'd do them all on tape till we finally got one we really liked. Then we would dump it up into digital, which many people 
do that using yeah, like the, the sound of tape and the compression you get from tape as an effect. Then going into digital and finishing up. But uh, that became problematic. The machine started breaking down, need to be maintained. Um, They're kind of like Hammond organs in a way. Yeah. Like these old tape machines. Because I think there's more people that know how to work on Hammond organs than there are on tape machines. Yeah. <laughs> in well, St. Louis, anyway. Yeah. Well, that's just <laughs> it. I mean, there's these old, like, archaic, you know, technology yeah. that once upon a time was the bleeding edge technology. And now, you know, they can't reproduce. They can't physically manufacture a Hammond organ the way they used to make yeah. them with the tone wheels like they used to do. Yeah. And they made a digital reproduction of it. Lots of people have. Yeah. Some are better than I others. I have, yeah. Yeah, some are <laughs> better than others. Um, and I know a few Hammond-type tech guys, and yeah. they're they're all a little quirky. Yeah. You know, but that's the way they are. I mean, they, they come to your house, and they take it apart, and they fix the things. It's, it's yeah. like it's alive. You know, oh, yeah. and, and tape I mean, machines are the same way. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. A lot of ghosts. I think the best tech technique or method for recording digitally is... You just have to have a good sound going in. I mean, yeah. you have you know, good preamps, compressors, everything, and just be really aware of how how it yeah. sounds when it's going in. Well, it's garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. You know, because the, the phrase I use all the time, and I'm sure listeners are, are annoyed with me saying this, is that, you know, technology, well, first of all, technology is great when it works. That's the one thing. Yeah. Right? Because there's no redundant system anymore. Now that it's all digital, that's the only way we have to do these things. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is that... Um, you can use its power for good or you can use its power for evil. Yeah. There's nothing preventing you really from going in and using Pro Tools and using it as a tape machine. Yeah. Pressing play, stop, and record, and then EQ and you know, your effects. The same things you would be doing in the analog realm, doing yeah. them digitally. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's like that once you cross that line, the first time you cut and paste something and drag this over here and then put a little auto-tune on it. But yeah. even auto-tune. I've used auto-tune for the power of good to save money. Sure. You know, we had, we rented, a, we rented some fancy, we rented an 1176 compressor, a Neve 1073 mic pre, and a, um, uh, whatchamacallit, LA-2A yeah. to do all the lead vocals on, on a record yeah. I was producing. And we really could only afford to rent that for the weekend. So we had to do everything we wanted to do through this rig for that weekend. Yeah. But we also had a, a copy of uh, Auto-Tune around. So it was more important to get the performance through the gear and not have it be exactly perfect. And then if it was too out of bounds, we could then go back and tweak it if we yeah. wanted to. I figured like that's, you know, some people might say that's questionable musical ethics, but you're using its power for good instead of evil. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Auto-Tune is... Uh, vilified in all different ways mostly based on the various kinds of abuses that yeah. are obvious to everybody you know yeah. people mention share and all this stuff and that that stuff's obvious everybody's using it on everything yeah if anybody says 